0: This morning we take our scripture reading from Luke chapter 24. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, beginning with verse 36. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and they thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it. And he ate it in their presence. The Word of God. When I was 16, my father came to me with an idea. He said, if you will memorize a certain number of pieces and perform a concert in front of a group of people in our house, I will buy you a grand piano. Like, really? Yeah, really. I doubt you can do it. What do I have to do again? You have to memorize some music. Needs to be classical music. You need to play in front of a group of people. And if you do that, we'll go down and buy a piano. I've been taking piano lessons since I was tiny. And my piano teacher, Mrs. Fraser, she was the piano teacher. She's the one everybody wanted. Hair up on top of her head and big red lips for lipstick and pearls around her neck. And her fingers clanked on the keys with her bracelets when she played. I was enamorated with her from the time I was tiny when I first started taking lessons with Miss Fraser. So I told Mrs. Frazier about my father's idea. We're going to do a concert. She and I began to work. We put together a set list, a repertoire, so a few months later I told my father, I'm all ready for the concert. He said, what? I said, yeah. How many songs? And I told him, well, they need to all be at least four pages long. What? You didn't say that. Yeah, I did say that. I sat down, went over my list with Mrs. Frazier, there needs to be classical music. It, they all need to be memorized. The songs have to be this, this many pages in length. I went back to my father a few weeks later. I'm ready for my concert. He said, what? I said, yeah. And I showed him the program. We went down to the piano store and picked out a baby grand piano. And then he told my mother. Uh-huh. And then... He told my mother. And then we cleared out the living room and we set up the chairs and we invited a group of people. The scary part for me, I have to play in front of all of these people. We all make decisions regularly with varying amounts of evidence. I don't know, is this possible or not? Is that possible or not? Sometimes we make our decisions with very little evidence. Will she really do this? Will she really practice? Will he really do this? Did he mean it? Sometimes we make decisions with an overwhelming amount of evidence and we still hesitate. Or we make decisions with overwhelming evidence and we leap, right? We have a cluster of stories in Luke chapter 24, resurrection stories, where the disciples and Jesus, well, the disciples have evidence and then choices to make. If you have a Bible, open it this morning to Luke chapter 24. You'll remember that last week uh, they were huddled in Jerusalem. It must now be the day and the day after Resurrection Sunday. They were huddled in Jerusalem, and uh, the women went to the tomb. They found it was empty. The men said, you're a little crazy. The word in the original language really is you're out of your beep-beep brain, mind. Peter went, scratched his head. The tomb is really empty. So two of them went to Emmaus, and as they're talking it over and working it out on the way, remembering all the details, Jesus shows up. This was our topic last week. If we missed you, go to our archives, wherever you watch online, and and listen to last week. So the two travel to Emmaus. Jesus now travels along. Late in the evening, they invite Jesus to stay over. They've been talking all day and working on things and working it out, and it's when Jesus takes the bread, and breaks it and blesses it, that these two disciples say, We know this guy. We recognize you. And and then this guy is gone. He just vanishes. The two disciples get up and hightail it back to Jerusalem, and they find their people. And they tell them, You're never going to believe this. The women were right. Peter was right. Jesus is really alive. And while they're standing here talking about this, Jesus steps into their midst one more time and says, Peace, peace be among you. Who is this Jesus who keeps appearing and disappearing? They're startled. They're terrified. They think they've seen a ghost, the Bible says. Yeah, that sounds about right. Luke 24, verse 38 says this. He said to them, why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Why do doubts arise in your heart? What's this internal debating you are doing? Why are you turning thoughts over and over? Why are you hesitating? This is the meaning behind the one word, the one English word the translators reach for, doubt. Why are you turning things over in your heart? Why are you hesitating? When the Gospel of John tells this story, John, the storyteller, isolates Thomas. Thomas is the one who has the challenge with doubt. Thomas is the one who needs extra evidence. It's Thomas who needs to press his fingers into the flesh of Jesus. And for requiring that evidence... Thomas, well, he'll carry a label through all of Christian history. It's interesting that we don't call Mary weeping Mary, and we don't call Peter two-faced Peter, and the brothers who demand to sit at the left and the right of Jesus, we don't call them the narcissistic twins, and Judas, we don't even call Judas betraying Judas. But Thomas, for some reason, Thomas is a placeholder for all of us throughout the generations who seem to de- be deliberating. We are turning things over in our heart. We're hesitating. The di- disciples really saw what they saw. Thomas saw what he saw. Crucified people don't come back to life again. And to be even more truthful, Jesus is the physician who doesn't heal himself and a savior who doesn't save himself. They saw what they saw. I appreciate this part of Jesus' interaction when he says, look, touch my hands and look at my feet. I'm not a ghost. It's me, myself. And he recognizes their trauma. They've really been through what they've been through. We don't know how drawn out this conversation how long they're together, if there's times for questions and answers. I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't give a lecture on regenerative medicine, nor on orthodoxy and doctrine. Look, I'm really divine now because I'm resurrected from the dead. Jesus keeps appearing and reappearing and appearing and reappearing, demonstrating resurrection, actually, rather than explaining it. And these resurrection appearances will always be surprises. The disciples, they're surprised when Jesus shows up. It's a surprise, you know, something you can't really manage, something you can't manipulate. Several of you have had birthdays this week. We've been paying attention, and uh, one of the birthdays in particular caught my attention. Four o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, Jillian Garrity calls Larry towards the front of the house because she says there's commotion and noise on the street. And when Larry opens the front door, he sees his daughter, and her family, and and yes, noise and commotion, and a parade of cars, 20, 25 cars. Maybe some of you were involved in this. The Office of Advancement from La Sierra University, or the Faculty and Friends Sabbath School class, or if you're an archaeology colleague, or a longtime companion and friend of the Garrity family, maybe some of you were involved as people drove by, and they threw balloons and cheers out the car, to wish Larry well on a landmark birthday, took him completely by surprise, right? You, that's, what, that's what a surprise is. You, you don't imagine it, you can't anticipate it, you, you, you can't manage it. Resurrection surprise, all these stories with Jesus and the disciples, the resurrection surprise, it doesn't always feel like a party. Sometimes these groups of disciples, when they have their internal churning and their hesitation, they, it doesn't feel good. It's as if, though, they've forgotten that they've been resourced for this. In the Gospel of Luke, there are 11 stories, 11 different stories where people are churning things over, having internal debate, hesitating. There are 11 stories where Jesus puts on display faith and trust, doubt and disbelief, before we even come to the showstopper of resurrection and post-resurrection experiences, take a screenshot or, shot or snap a picture. Here are, here's a reference to many of these stories in the Gospel of Luke. Look at them this week. In Luke chapter 7, there's a Roman soldier with a sick servant. In, in Luke chapter 7, there's a woman who anoints Jesus' feet. In Luke 8, there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. In Luke 17, there's disciples who are instructed on forgiveness. Seven times seven times what? In Luke 17, there are ten with skin disease, severe skin disease, and one says thanks. In Luke 18, there's a blind man who wants to see. In Luke 22, the Last Supper, Jesus prays for Peter. It turns out that none of these stories really set up the experience as faith versus doubt, as if faith is on one end of the continuum and doubt is on the other. The Bible spills over, in fact, with stories of people who are, are, are hanging on with doubt as their faith. Jesus, our prime example on the cross, my God, my God, why? Why? So Luke has prepared and resourced these disciples. Jesus has prepared them and resourced them. The issue is not weak faith or strong faith, faith absent faith or a little faith. Jesus said, you, you got faith the size of a mustard seed? That'll be enough. It turns out that, that faith is not a product. It's a practice. It's faith. It's, it's not a commodity. It's more like an expedition, a trek, a journey in this life. Some days we'll have more doubts. Some days we'll have more confidence. What comes to us, what's come to me over time, is that faith is less and less hoping for specific things to happen, looking for specific things to happen, and it's more faith in the one who makes all of life happen. Verse 41 is the verse that has my attention as I read this story in 2020. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering, he, Jesus, said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Jesus can hold joy and wonder and doubt and ask for dinner all at the same time. It's as necessary as dinner, having this doubt and disbelieving coexisting. They're all on the menu together. And joy. Doesn't that that bring a smile to your face that joy coexists with all of this over supper time? Here, let's go and eat now and we don't have to work it out all out tonight. Jesus can hold all of these things together. We've not been shy in our La Sierra community over the years to name the place of doubt in our faith journey. And we've quoted Paul Tillich and Anne Lamott, and we've quoted uh, Verna Dozier and teachers and professors and favorite personalities. We've quoted them all in lines like this. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's fear. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's control. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's self-sufficiency. The source of all of that wisdom, it turns out, is Jesus, that this idea of practicing resurrection, this is to, to do life, to journey with the risen Jesus in the middle of our life, surrounded by death, to do life with Jesus in a world surrounded by death, it will often feel that doubt is a strong companion, Some days we'll feel a little more like practicing doubt instead of practicing resurrection. And listen, it's easier to celebrate resurrection than practice it. It's easier to practice resurrection than doubt. Practicing doubt might be the most courageous act of all. And practicing doubt can lead us into a future we've yet imagined, church, what is it you're doing with your resurrection doubt this week? I'm guessing you have some. I'll go first, like last week. I didn't know how much music would play a role in my life growing up. I didn't realize for years, I, I know you're wondering how my you're wondering, how my father survived the wrath of my mother, aren't you? Yeah. We'll have to wait for that story uh, in The Earth Made New one day. I never understood how much music would play a role in my life. I think my mother understood much sooner. I was always attracted to loud songs and heavy songs and big chords, chords too much for my short fingers. And so my music teacher, my piano teacher, taught me how to drop notes in the middle of the chord so I could still play these big, heavy songs that I was attracted to. I wanted those songs more than any of the rest. And it would be that I would come home from school in the afternoon and I would head to the piano. Um, I didn't actually realize what I was doing but I would go for those particular songs. And I didn't start on page one, two, or three. I would go to the center of the song, maybe page three or four. I'd get just to the part of the song where I knew my fingers could just drop and pound. Sounded like this. I would go over and over and over, the same parts of the song again and again and again. And then I would move from this song, one of the songs from my big concert when I was 16 years old, to another song with big, heavy chords where I could just drop my fingers and sink them into the song. I think that's where I worked things out. What are you doing with your resurrection doubt? There's a comment thread on the platform where you're watching. Drop us a line. Talk to each other. What are you doing with your resurrection doubt right now? Are you digging in the dirt and planting things? Are you creating music and art? Are you um, spinning your wheels inside of four walls, wondering? What are you doing with your resurrection doubt these days? Are you reaching out and contacting more people because this is how you turn it over and turn it over and turn it over in your life? We are in good company, you and I, those of us who experience resurrection doubt because celebrating resurrection is easier than practicing it and recognizing it. And practicing doubt, it takes even more care. Please hear me today, church family, when I say, there ought to be no lonely doubters in the tribe of Jesus. If you're looking for a church home, we invite you to join us. My deep, my deep experience with the La Sierra community is that this is a safe place for doubting. What are you doing with your resurrection doubt? It turns out that you can put whatever, we can put whatever resurrection doubt we have in our hands and, and offer it to the heavenly parent, to our creator. We can take that doubt and ask the Heavenly Parent to hold our hand. And then we can imagine, what does the world look like when God's will is actually being done? And we can invite the Spirit to draw us towards that will and see, where can resurrection doubt take us? Because sometimes practicing resurrection begins with practicing doubt. Amen.